Welcome to the Steadfast Podcast, where we as a community of believers dive deep past the waves of this modern world and its culture into ourselves to find a deeper truth to anchor ourselves to. I'm your host, Braden Singer, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Henry McGalliard. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Um, hope, I hope that you've had a good week since we've last uh, been together. Um, I know for us it's been uh, spring break, so it's been nice and relaxing and uh, restful and uh, just rejuvenating for the weeks to come. Um, I know that uh, you know it, it's probably not for uh, many of y'all, but I hope that uh, during this week you're able to uh, charge through and get to that point of rest. Um, I know that this week in particular I'm very excited for our guest. Uh, he is a mentor of mine uh, in the faith and uh, was really uh, a good friend of mine in high school. Uh, he was my Spanish teacher, but he's so much more than that. Uh, he is a light to everybody that he comes into contact with, and I'm so excited to welcome onto the show, Senor Robert Allen. Oh, gracias, Enrique. Uh, hola, Pablo. Um, gracias por la oportunidad de ser entrevistado. Hey, wait a minute. Are we doing this in English or Spanish? <laughs> I forgot. Uh, yeah. English? English? No, Spanglish? Just, just English? Yeah, English okay. would be good. All right, we'll do that. Um, it is interesting how when I do bump into students, I will sometimes remember the Spanish name that I called them in the classroom, and I'll forget their English name, so... Don't be surprised if I'm still around 10 years from now. Hey, Pablo Enrique. So that won't be a big surprise there on that one. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to, uh, to sharing uh, some, of, some of my stories with you to, in the audience there. And I, again, I wanted to compliment you on your name, Steadfast uh, Podcast, because Steadfast to me is like a steady grind. And I think as a Christian, it's not a sprint. It's, it's like a marathon and, you, and it's a long race. And uh, and so you got to be steadfast in your faith and, and just keep pressing on and pressing on and so forth. But I love the name along with it rhyming with podcast, of course. <laughs> steadfast podcast. I like that. Great name. Well, Great you. message. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and your faith walk and how it has affected the person you have become and are becoming. Okay. My story begins in 1969 in California when I discovered America. And my, my parents both went to church. They met at La Puente, Church of Christ. And my mom and dad both come from very large families. My dad, uh, including himself, has eight siblings. And my mom has six. And uh, even though they met at church, uh, my mom actually married someone else. And then she reconnected with my dad about probably about four years later, where he ended up marrying her and adopting three kids because the last guy left her with three kids. And so my dad, I don't know any guy at age 21, Brayden, that would actually adopt three kids. So I have a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of respect for my dad. Um, but I think my takeaway from all that is that I did learn early on that churches are very important to the family structure. And, and my mom kind of uh, reinforced that every time she woke us up every Sunday for church. I remember one Sunday... It was 7.30, she woke us up as routine, you know, each of the six kids. And I decided I was going to get a lecture sleep, and she came in around 8 o'clock, hey, you know, uh, why aren't you up? And I said, I'm praying, and I'm thanking God for the extra time he gave me to sleep. And so I got, I had to hightail it really fast and get ready, and, and we went to church. And because I went to public school, I think for me, I really realized later on how much church really helped form my faith and my relationships. And... By the time I got into um, junior high and high school, uh, me and my best friend Andy uh, were probably the leaders in the group. We would often be asked on Wednesday nights to, to lead the, the short lesson that was usually um, you know, asked to, to, to be taught that evening. Um, so for me in growing up, that was really important. 
As far as the Spanish goes, as you know, me being a Spanish teacher, our church would often do these mission projects because you know we're a couple hours north of the border in Southern California, and so one of the programs was uh, the City of Children in Ensenada, Mexico. And we would often donate cans, clothing, um, and so I was exposed to a lot of that early on. Plus, just living in Southern California, you have to hablar español con los mexicanos. There's, there's so many Spanish-speaking people in Southern California that I think I just grew to love the people and I always wanted to communicate other than, hola, como estas? I wanted to be able to do a lot more. There was one particular lady that went to our church because we did have a bilingual church and her name was Esther Jurado. She was from Guatemala. And my mom became really, really good friends with her. She would take her places. She would uh, help her with her bills if she needed. But she formed this bond with her. And it kind of, as I got older, it kind of transferred to me because Esther would often ask me for rides and so forth. And so I had an early exposure to the Spanish culture. Um, and related to that, you know, I was taking Spanish class in eighth grade. And I remember I even, ha I even went to Amazon to see if the textbook was there. My very first textbook was churros y chocolate, donuts and hot chocolate. And the very first phrase I remember ever officially learning in Spanish was me gusta el baseball. And so I love baseball, I guess that's why. Um, very first thing I remember from that textbook, you can find it um, on Amazon. You can find pretty much anything on Amazon. But nevertheless, I took Spanish uh, all the way through senior high. I took AP Spanish which is probably my toughest and most rewarding class. Um, so that's kind of how everything got started for me. Um, back to high school though, uh, at the same time um, as I was forming my faith, um, I kind of have one of those weird stories where, uh, I know growing up Church of Christ, the importance of baptism. And, and really for me, as I've gotten older, I really feel that the importance really is on repentance. Um, because once you repent, you truly change your life, then the baptism, you know, it kind of comes naturally, it means so much more. And then living, as we say, I never use this word ever except in the context of baptism because after we say you walk in newness of life, I've never heard newness in any other phrase ever used except for right after baptism, walk in newness of life. Um, and so that for me um, meant something because on August 2nd, 1980, after a hellfire brimstone sermon at church, I got baptized, I was 11 and a half. And I came home, my dad was asleep and he was asking, you know, I wasn't even there and you got baptized. And went, I just felt like I needed to do it. And I'm not, I'm not here to say that I don't invalidate that baptism. But on July 4th, 1985, when I was 16, I got re-baptized because I have an uncle who was a preacher at the time. And he kind of, kind of made me doubt my baptism because of just how young I was and everything. Um, to be honest with you, if I was to, you know, if you were to say, hey, where do you, where do you, you know, do you have faith in your first or second baptism? I would probably go back to the first one because when you make the commitment, even at 11 and a half, okay, because I ask myself this question that we often ask, you know, if you died tonight, you know, where do you think you'd go? Um, when my kids were younger, they would say that too. And I would say, I would say that same question. I remember Jordan, my son, he would say, I haven't. I'm like, all right, have a good night. <laughs> But then after a while, when it was like he was after between 10 and 12, I began asking that same question. And he said, I'm not sure. I said, well, maybe we need to discuss this further. So, you know, that's kind of, that was kind of what happened to me. My point is simply this. When we make a commitment to Jesus Christ, we may not understand at the time the commitment we're making, right? But it's still a commitment nevertheless. Just like when, um, you know, on, 
on June 30th, 1989, better not forget that date, because that's the day I got married. <laughs> kind of pause there, probably because I'm nervous about this podcast. Um, but yeah, on June 30th, 1989, when I said I do, and I, I made my vows to my wife, Julie, you guys, I'm telling you, I can't begin to tell you, when I said I do, I did not know the level of commitment. I mean, I knew I loved her. I knew I was committed to the relationship and making it last till death do us part and all the other parts of the vows as well. But man, after all we've been through together, um, you know, I call it going through the fires of Mordor with somebody. Because uh, <laughs> when it's over, you feel so close to that person. And she, you know, I'm, I feel so much love and conviction and, and passion for her and respect just because of all we've been to together. But my point is simply this, the commitment level. When you make that commitment to that person, in this case, it's Jesus. You don't know the extent of it until it happens. So I, I know that was kind of long-winded, but that's that's my baptism story because I don't know if any of you, any of people you've interviewed, have had two baptisms, you know, where you've had to, you know, you had to deal with that. And so that's how I came to terms with the two baptism things. Um, another integral part of my faith when I was young was because I went to public school, my church life had to be really, really strong. I was always going to the Bible studies, um, any any activity that involved the youth. I was there Monday night. We did volleyball. Garden Grove, uh, remember just just so the church you know folks would meet, and so any chance I could to hang around church folks, it was good because when I was at public school, it was just difficult. I was challenged constantly, and you know me teaching at a, a private Christian school in rural Arkansas, you know many times I'm talking to you know I'm preaching to the choir, versus in public school where I was, you really had to know what you believed at the time, or you're tostada amigo, you know what I mean? You had to make sure that you know what you believed in wine and be able to defend your beliefs. And so it, I was challenged a lot more in public school in that respect. It's kind of a pro-con thing for me because I, I realized that Jesus was obviously educated within the Israeli camp, not outside it, you know. So some people make the case for homeschooling because, hey, look at Jesus. He was raised by the Israelites. And I get it. I get it. So in our culture, though, because we have the option of private or public school, I think for me, you know, at the time, you got six kids. My dad just trying to make sure we're all fed. Obviously, we're going to go to public school. So they did make sure that I had these positive spiritual experiences is what I'm saying. Well, one of those was going to Bible camp. There is a, a place in San Bernardino Bounce, about two hours away, called Camp Tonda. And I'd often go to Bible camp there during the summertime. Well, I met this girl named Laura Turner. You're going to need to remember that name. Laura Turner. And I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, no, I was a freshman in high school. And then I went back as a junior, and Laura was there also. Had some great experiences. I remember just feeling very close to God on a mound, typically like people do when they go. I think for us it's Camp Dakota, right? You go to Camp Dakota. I would say Camp Wildwood, but I have negative experiences that mainly my kid getting stung by a bee. Uh, oh. but, uh, other than that, I mean, everybody seems to always talk about you know Camp Dakota and for Arkansas. But for me, Bible Camp was good. And meeting Laura Turner and some other people helped kind of shape my faith. These were people going to different churches, um, but they, you know, they, it was a Church of Christ, I think one was in Pasadena, another one was in Yorba Linda. Incidentally, since we know, we have the same, you know, contacts, Coach Matthews, my former boss at the academy, uh, he went to church in Southern California, I actually knew him, but we never went to Bible camp together. But Bible camp to me was a way to get closer to God. Now, I know it's easy to get closer to God on a mountain, kind of like monks, you know, because you're away from everybody, because then you come back down to the valley and with the people again, and and you kind of have to deal with the fact that all right, I'm 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 back at home now. I gotta now, it's you kind of have to readjust, so to speak. 
but it was a very important part of my life. And um, so I really enjoyed the opportunities to, to go to Bible camp. Fast forward to college. Uh, so I move on from high school and I'm in college. And this is kind of weird for me, guys. And um, this is where I'm kind of... Um, when I was in high school, I knew what I believed and why because I was, you know, I was part of the few, the proud, the, the Christian. Well, I get to Harding and one of the advantages of Harding is that it is a Christian institution and you're around a bunch of other Christians. And I went in kind of naive thinking that everybody was a Christian and that everybody was doing the right thing. And sadly, I discovered that was not the case. And so I actually struggled spiritually. I was actually doing better in high school. I felt a lot stronger in my faith in high school. And I kind of struggled because I think sometimes people take it for granted at the university, the opportunity to go. I mean, I was excited about going to Bible class and because I never got to do that. And I, I but I sensed that other people didn't feel the same way. And so I wanted to love God with my heart, soul, mind and strength. And I, I felt like people around me were kind of Christians in name only. Not all. There were actually some really good genuine ones. I discovered also, but I wouldn't very naive, you know, even when dating people that, oh, you know, she's a Christian, obviously she's going to behave Christianly, and that was not the case. Uh, so that's something that I struggled with, and that kind of, uh, for a time, I even had a slight falling out with my best friend Andy, who actually went to Harding early on. He skipped a senior in high school uh, to go to uh, Harding University. Uh, he ended up uh, dropping out after his sophomore year. So it was a very difficult time. I don't know why college is that way, guys. You know, it's like the, you know, I always talk about college would be different because we don't have to deal with all that high school drama, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and see how that's worked out, right? <laughs> I, had, I had this experience where, man, is what? high school is a lot easier than, than college. Um, so that's where I kind of had my struggles. But once it was over, um, that's in my sophomore year in college, that's when I met Julie. And that was a game changer. Uh, I was dating another girl at the time. was not a good relationship. Partly my fault. Partly her fault. I mean, I'm not here to, you know, score points or anything. I'm just saying, you know, I, I was being brought down spiritually, but I was probably not helping any also. And so I was introduced to Julie while dating another woman. So I tried a couple of times to break up with her unsuccessfully. And I was hoping it was going to be amicable, but... In the end, it did not turn out very friendly, but later on in life, we'd reconnect. I was able actually to share pictures of my kids with her and she with me, and so things were a little bit better. I actually saw her at a chess competition <laughs> of all places to meet your ex, you know, at a chess competition. But I did meet Julie through John and Sarah Barton. I think uh, he's a, they were missionaries in Africa, and then they ended up working, I think, at Pepperdine. But John introduced me to Julie in the heritage uh, area by the hotel desk. So every time I walk past there, I always feel like I need to take off my shoes because I'm entering holy ground, you know. It's, it's I'm like, that's where I met her. But here's the kicker, guys. So Julie's from Texas, but her dad's from California. And I'm going to try to make the connection with Laura Turner with you back from the beginning here when I was in high school. Well, um, I, go to, I go back to California for Christmas in 1988. And Julie comes out to visit. We've been dating for three months, but I know she's the one. And... It's inter interesting because when we were dating, we reached this point where she said, hey, I'd like to date you, but I'd like to date other people. And I said, well, okay. I said, you can date other people, you just can't date me. I'd rather date you exclusively or not at all. Apparently, guys, I passed the test. I did not know I passed this test, but she's trying to see, her, see how serious I really was in the relationship. So that was apparently a plus. I passed the test. So we got really serious after that. And then... 
on December the 29th, 1988, when she was in California, I proposed to her. And then I did the craziest thing. I asked her dad for permission after I proposed to her. I didn't do it before, so I kind of had it <laughs> backwards. I'd never done this before. Yeah, I didn't know what I, I probably didn't know what I was doing. So he said, well, I guess we'll have to say yes, since you obviously asked her. So we're visiting her grandparents who live in California. And when we're visiting her grandparents, I see this picture in the, in the piano room of Laura Turner. I said, hey, that's Laura Turner. And Julie says, yeah, that's my cousin. And my mind went back to my years back at Bible camp. And I thought, I hope I wasn't a jerk. I hope I wasn't a jerk. I hope I wasn't. <laughs> no, I wasn't a jerk. Okay, at least at that moment, I wasn't a jerk. And so it, my point is simply your Christian reputation, you know, it takes a lifetime to build. It could take a night to, to ruin. I was just so grateful at the time that, you know, Laura, put, looked, you know, we had a very good relationship. And at that time, I was much stronger in my faith. Because Laura could have made or break me, you know, at that moment by telling Julie, yeah, he's a loser, don't, <laughs> you know, date that guy, you don't want to marry that guy, he's a loser. But the fact that she knew who I was and she approved, that helps. And the grandparents liked me, they just said I'd, I'd talk too much. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah. But it was, it was a great experience, but that's brought me to where I'm at. And then at the time I went to Harding, I was offered a, a full tuition scholarship at Pepperdine as a Bible major. Because I thought at the time I wanted to be a preacher. And um, at the very last minute, because of my best friend, just goes to show how your friends can influence you, uh, he went to this thing called Spring Sing in 1987. We were on a mission trip in uh, Minnesota, and he went ahead and, and flew down to this place called Searcy, Arkansas. We both thought we were going to Abilene Christian. And he said, Rob, we're going to Harding. I'm like, okay. So again, just being influenced by your best friend. So that's what got me to Harding. And I was a Bible major at Harding. In fact, I was a biblical languages major I skipped a year of Spanish. I missed Spanish so much that I ended up going back and taking the Spanish course and ended up getting a major in Spanish. And then I finally realized <clears throat> that I think I was called to be a teacher, not a preacher. I still love talking to people about my faith, do that all the time. But nevertheless, that was, uh, that was my journey. So I that was kind of a long-winded answer, but that's how we arrived to where we are now. And I got a job at Harding. thought I was going to take the job at Memphis Harding Academy. And then Ava Conley, the Spanish teacher at the university, said, hey, there's an opening across the street, and you know the rest of the story. So, and here we are. That's how we met. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. There, was, there was a lot of really, really great stuff uh, in that answer, and there are a couple things I kind of want to uh, talk about. First, uh, I kind of want to go back to uh, the discussion about baptism, and I know that this is a very, okay. very, uh, it can be a little bit of a controversial subject in, sure. in the churches and that type of thing, but I think it's just, it's so important, you know, to yeah. talk about, uh, the depth of, of what that commitment means and that type of thing. And I, I do think that a lot of times we can, uh, as you say, we can kind of discount that that baptism is like, oh, you're not ready. You're not ready to be baptized or you didn't understand that type of thing. And, you know, in my in, in my opinion, in my experience, I think that, I don't think that that is, that's such a great response though, you know, is saying that someone isn't ready because there's at no point in anybody's life where you can be good enough to be saved. Absolutely. It's not about earning. It's not about becoming yeah. a better person so that you can be saved. It's about recognizing that we are all broken people and we're all, Absolutely. we're all sinners. And the only way that we can be made good enough is if we surrender to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because he's the one who completes that. He's the one that makes us perfect. Yeah, there's a former student that shall go name, but I'm, I'm, I've been trying for the last couple of years to convince that person that you can't ever be good enough. And, and, that, and so they have some issues and some questions, so I'm going to continue to be patient and 
continue to foster that relationship with the end goal of converting that person to Jesus. But, but you're right. In fact, I always point out to people, even a lot of denominations, Christian denominations in our Church of Christ that where I attend, they're seeing the importance of baptism because they're seeing how in Romans 6, it's a reenactment of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that we died ourselves, we're buried in a watery grave, and we're raised to walk in that famous word, newness of life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you really see the importance if we're trying to be like Christ, you know, even he did it to fulfill righteousness it talked about in the book of Matthew, um, that we're trying to be like him. And then I think the toughest part, once we get done with that, is, is that's where I think Satan's going to attack us, because that's why we have to constantly... Colossians 3 talks about putting to death, you know, the old self. We're constantly having to kill that old self and the desires and the temptations. You know, I tell my students all the time, there are attractions we should not act upon. Uh, there, everybody's tempted in different ways. That's why I don't consider myself, you know, necessarily superior to somebody just because maybe I'm not tempted by this temptation per se. But we're all tempted in, in different ways. And the, the important thing is that we need to recognize that God wants to protect us and provide for us. And it's all about how we put our hope and faith and trust in the one who is greater than he who's in the world and so forth. So, um, but I think that's an excellent point you made about, about baptism and commitment level. Yeah. That's true. And I, I, I really, really think that um, specifically looking at, at that and the way that our society views baptism, that type of thing, I think we have a lot more uh, conflict about it, you know, than, than I think, than we should, because I believe that, you know, Baptism is so much more than just a physical act. You know, it's not about okay. although although physical baptism is important that type sure. of thing. I think even more than that, the spiritual baptism, the the dedication of self to Jesus, and and the yeah. the changing of spirit. That's that's the deepest part of baptism. And I think that you know if we if we acknowledge the deeper motives that the that the physical motives are based on too. Yeah. I think that that's really really powerful. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I think for a lot of people, if you've grown up in a particular domination, that you know they'll even say we encourage baptism. I think some people, and this is where I, I have trouble because I can't judge their hearts. I can only judge their actions of how serious they really are. You know, once they're baptized, afterward you can kind of see. You know, you can Jesus talks about judging people by their fruit. What are they producing? You know, proof of product, so to speak. And I think that's, that's also important. Again, on one hand, I don't want to judge that, but on the other hand, you can kind of see. Just like, you know, I've said this about my students. My students can spot a phony pretty quick. And you can only do the dance for so long. After a while, they're going to figure you out. And uh, so it's important to be genuine, authentic, you know, in, in your walk with God. Not, I'm not claiming being perfect. I'm just saying you're... you're you're trying to live for Jesus. Because I find myself, I'm sure, there's some point in the day where I felt like I didn't live for Christ. And, you know, not, and when I'm praying to God, that's, that's stuff where he and I, we can, we can address that at the time. But, but my goal is to, is to serve him by serving other people. Um, but it's, it's not perfect. It's like I'm failing forward, but I know God's grace covers me. That's why I think it's in First John, it talks about, you know, if we say we're out without sin, you know, we make him out to be a liar. And so that's why we know that for the Christian, the difference is that we're forgiven. And in the relationship aspect of it, uh, it's, we're in a different situation. So that's, a, that's so true. And I think, you know, there is a very, very big distinction between 
struggling and, and fighting and working out her mm-hmm. faith and, and or salvation, fear and trembling versus actively living apart from that and saying something else. You know, uh, mm-hmm. there's a phrase that's used in James about the, the double minded man. Um, yeah. Someone who says one thing and does Tossed another about, thing. Like the ocean. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. and God is very, very adamant about, um, you know, he talks about it in, like in the Old Testament too. He doesn't use uh, double-minded man, but he talks about Israel as, he's saying basically like fake worship is meaningless and that type of yeah. thing. If your heart's not into it, he's not interested. You know, it's not about the action so much as it is about the the uh, the commitment and, and the devotion to him and, and the truth and the genuineness of spirit and so I think that you know that's such an important thing for a Christian to have and I kind of want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about your uh, your experiences in college where everybody a lot of people said that they were Christians but they yeah. didn't act that way and that really really that hurt your faith and I would say that you know more than anything else in the world something that really, really makes people who don't believe in God struggle with thoughts of maybe I should believe in God is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their words but don't acknowledge Him with their lives. Ouch, yeah. And I yeah. think that, and I'm not I'm, I'm not guilty. guilty. Yeah, I'm yeah. guilty. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not judging anybody, anybody's motives or anything like that, but I'm saying that... But you know them by their fruits. As exactly, exactly. And, and it's, the, it's not the messing up every now and then it's the lifestyle choices that and continuing to call yeah. oneself Christian so I think that um, one of the biggest things that we can do is start by asking ourselves what are what are my real intentions here what are my real what 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 am I really passionate about am I am I passionate for Jesus or am I just saying that and I think that making that faith genuine making that faith our own Absolutely. is just is such an important thing to do before we can talk about anything else we need to get our own house in order, so to you, say. You just, as you were talking, you reminded me of, of when Paul, in the book of Acts, he was really close with the church in Ephesus. And we see at the very end, I didn't notice it. And guys, I've, I've taught Revelation for over 20 years. But in the book of Ephesians, at the very end, check it out when we're done with this podcast tonight. He he wishes for the Ephesian church to, to have an undying love for Christ. That was the very last thing he mentions. And, you know, at the very end, it's almost like a little footnote there, right? The, the chapter 6, okay, because they had chapters in the original text, kidding. <laughs> but we get to Revelation, and we get to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Well, the very first church is Ephesians. It's a church in Ephesus. And, and, and when we get to Revelation, what's really interesting is that John, he's writing the words of Jesus, but John's, he always has a praise, a problem, and there's a prescription to fix it, and it's usually repent. Actually, it's always repent. Um, <laughs> that's the way you got to fix it. Repent. Just change. And then the promise for those who overcome, and it's usually some form of you know eternal life. But So the, the praise for the Church of Ephesians was that they were really good on doctrine. In fact, they hated the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which we don't have time to talk about in this podcast, but they were really sound doctrinally. This would be a church you go, man, I want to be a part of this church. But then John mentions their problem, and this is kind of what you hit on earlier, is they fell to love with Jesus. They're going through the motions, kind of like me with my experiences in college, I found myself kind of going through the motions and, and forgetting the love that I have for Jesus. And it's easy to be, you know, a, it's easy to be a Christian like that, but really, I mean, you're kind of fooling yourself. You're living two lives, and two lives, you know, take half as long to live. I mean, you're trying to be consistent in your walk with God, but... 
you know, but the genuine part isn't there. It's not authentic. Mm -hmm. so, exactly. That's, that's kind of what you were mentioning earlier. And just remind me that with the church in Ephesus. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think that something that you mentioned that's so important is if we start falling into that, you know, going through the motions and not really, you know, having that, that genuineness, there is a way out. There is a way to fix that, you know. There is a way to, to rekindle that first love, you know. And uh, I think of... Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, I believe it's prophet Hosea, mm -hmm. who uh, it talks a lot about. Um, Hosea was uh, called by God to marry a woman who was unruly and, and who, who was unfaithful yeah. to demonstrate Israel's unfaithfulness to God. And all throughout that book, there's this beautiful, painful parallel to, to, human, to human love and that type of thing. Yeah. And But in the end, he always talks about like having that genuine love and even though that there is there's hurt and there's history there there's still the ability to come around to that perfect love and and to have that to find that first love and rejuvenate that relationship and i think that it's the same way with christians and god because yeah. sometimes it is it is difficult and it can get to that point where we can feel um spiritually spirit excuse me spiritually lethargic kind of yeah and so how how do you think we can rekindle that fire once it's been well, the very first thing, uh, back to the church in Ephesus, because this went into your question. He said to remember, repent, and repeat, the three R's. Remember the things that you used to do at first, and then repent. you you got to change the way, you got to change some habits. You know, it's kind of like a, a pilot. You know, it's kind of, you know, you're in this trajectory, and you kind of have to course correct. I think for a lot of people, first of all, you have to see the need to course correct. And then you go ahead and, and make the correction. Um, because it, it all goes back to, do you trust yourself or are you going to trust in the one whom created you? That he wants to protect you and provide for you and take care of you. Um, and so that's, that's really, at the end of the day, who, you know, whom you're going to trust. But yeah, remember the things that you used to do at first. That's why as, as a 52-year-old man you know, who sold out to Jesus back in 1980, long, long time ago, where I you know, raised this, the stakes of the game by becoming an official follower of Jesus, um, I knew that in the end, that it was really a matter of who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust in my own wisdom? Because there are many instances, guys, I can tell you through the years where I'm a sadder but wiser person. And I try to teach that to my students so they can learn from my mistakes. I try to tell them, guys, you're going to make mistakes in life, but if you can ever learn from the mistakes of other people, or even maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's someone in the Bible, you're, you're very much a wiser person for it. If you can avoid some of those big ones in particular, uh, you're going to be, a, you know, so the habits you're building right now, you know, like lately we've talked about cheating. Um, that was something that I did in junior high and high school on occasion, uh, whether it's copying a paper. Usually I was the giver instead of the receiver. But again, I, I once once I became a follower, I knew it was wrong. And so I tried to change uh, pretty quick. Sometimes it's just trying to fit in, feeling pressure, being a freshman here with a bunch of seniors in class and so forth. And sometimes I was a follower. As I got older, I will admit, my junior, senior year, I was more of a leader. And, you know, I could care less what people thought of me at that point, you know, versus, you know, freshman, sophomore, I want to be accepted, I want to fit in and all that. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's really whom you're going to trust. And, um, and as I got older, I realized that I can't make it without God's help. I need God in my life. And I realize now, and it's, he's been so patient with me because even though I've been unfaithful, he's still faithful and he's still forgiving. Kind of mentioned Hosea. I, I mean, you know, when you view yourself, yeah, we're the woman that's been unfaithful, you know, and God still is willing to take us back. And he, he's still willing to offer his son to pay the fine that we should pay. Um, and that's something that, 
try to get that across to young people, it's a challenge sometimes because they, I think their view of, uh, of God is like he's this cosmic cop that's ready to strike you at any moment's notice instead of a loving father as you find in the, in the parable uh, you know, of, the, of, the, of the prodigal son. You know, that's the God that I serve and that we serve. And so helping them understand that, it's, it's, a, it's a tough sell. Um, but, you know, that's why I don't give up. And at least I know I'm in friendly company. I do have other people that are like-minded in the classroom. So that gives me an advantage. So when I, when I meet that one student who I just bought a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Dr. Frank Turk. He's a Christian apologist. Well, this kid claims to be an atheist. And so I said, are you at least willing to read a book if I give it to you? And I can work with, I can work with an atheist as long as you're open-minded. If you're closed-minded, yeah, I can't work with you because you're closed-minded. Mm -hmm. And I mean, but if you're open-minded, then I can at least make a case for God mm -hmm. because I can't prove God scientifically because you have to observe it and repeat it. Well, you can't do that with evolution either. You can observe it and repeat it. That's what's called a theory, not a law of evolution, but a theory. But I digress. But back to my point. I just figured at least if I give him a book to read, if he reads it and he says it, it's true. If I say it, it's suspect, but if he says it, it's true. And so for a lot of young people, they got to come to their own conviction of where they're at in their faith. But but I'm, I'm here to, I'm an armory. I'm trying to arm these students with weapons, spiritual weapons, to fight the battle. That's how I've always felt my job is as a teacher at Harding Academy, is that, yeah, I am here to teach you Spanish. And yeah, we could play Kahoot and GimKit and these fun games to reinforce the learning. Because I believe in gamification of content. I actually believe in that. But I also believe that there is a point where you do have to get serious about, about some things and ask the tough questions uh, to see where you're at in your faith, you know, and what you believe. Um, but I also believe that it's important for me to give them the tools that they need to survive and flourish as a Christian. Um, again, whether they use the tools, guys where they use the, the weapons that I try to arm them with, you know, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, all that mentioned in the book of Ephesians, that's going to be up to them. But it goes back to, do you trust these weapons that they're going to protect you and provide for you? And so forth. I'm trying to convince them that it does. Sadly, guys, um, one in four, I think, still remain faithful upon high school graduation. We deal, we deal with competing ideologies, tough times. Our culture has blasted them. And social media is, is relentless on on how they're going to, you know, kind of try to change kids' minds and everything. So they, they've got a battle, a big battle to face. And I'm just trying to give them the what I consider the truth, not a truth, but the truth. Mm. Yeah, I can speak for, you know, being at the academy. And you have chapel every day. You have Bible every day. Mm -hmm. And so you really start to become complacent in your faith. Yeah, jaded, yeah. Yeah, and so whenever you leave that and your faith is tested out in the real world, yeah. your faith grows and you grow and you start reading your Bible and you start praying and you really start researching all this different stuff. Yeah, and listen, that's why back in the 2000s when I was allowed to, um, I took about five or six mission trips to Mexico and Ecuador. One of the reasons why I did that is because I think a lot of, a lot of the young people, they have this pent-up need to... To, to actually practice their faith, but they're not given that opportunity. Um, sadly, um, you know, for legal reasons, it, you know, initially it was because of the beheadings in Mexico in 2010. We just canceled the, the trip to Mexico altogether. But that was one of my greatest moments uh, experience-wise at the academy 
or the mission trips. And people ask me, you know, years from now, what was your favorite moment at the academy? I'll always say the mission trips to Mexico and Ecuador. Just because kids have a, have a moment to actually share their faith in a, in a different country and kind of experience life, uh, but they're able to practice it. And they're not just taught all these things, they actually can see it in action. And the, they talked about in like these monkey surveys where what's the greatest impact that, that one can have on a child? And they discovered foreign missions, not just missions, foreign missions. So I got a job to do. Maybe someday I'll be able to talk to the new administration into letting me go again because I've talked to the kids right now because of COVID. Good luck going anywhere right now. I mean, we can. I can't even go to the the Mexican restaurant or El Mercado right now, <laughs> let alone to you know a foreign country to you know to you know, practice mission work. So that's that's just what we have to deal with for now. But that means so much to me because again, they've discovered that when kids actually practice their faith out there, that the odds of, ret of retaining them increases so I would love and I tell this to the kids all the time I want those kids I want to change that statistic to four out of four we keep mm -hmm. not one out of four we keep and I know Jesus talks about the parable of the sowers and and about one-fourth remain faithful and you know Matthew 7 13 and 14 talks about a narrow gate a wide gate um, but man when I see Revelation 7 9 where you see a multitude in heaven not just 144,000 on earth fighting that gives me hope that there are a lot more in heaven than even I anticipate. And it gives me hope uh, that, and really it kind of get, gives, puts a fire in me to continue to look for opportunities to, to share my faith, those open door of opportunities. I always pray for open doors all the time. Mm -hmm. And even in my Bible classes, there have been moments where um, I've actually sat in desks of students and have prayed for that person to know Jesus. I don't think I've ever shared that until now. Um, it was just one of the things I would do um, to try to try to connect with that student who may be struggling in their faith or maybe questioning things uh, that you know maybe that they'll they'll consider Jesus not as a way but as the way. Mm, that's really really fantastic, and I kind of wanted to to backtrack again. There's I found like a common denominator between a couple of things. First off, I want to I want to talk about something uh, Braden was talking about earlier today, and he also posted about. Um, he was looking into um, countries around the world where Christianity is either illegal or, or suppressed. Yeah. And it's so interesting because the church is growing there, almost yeah. across the board. Anywhere, anywhere that, the, that Christianity is illegal, it, it's actually a growing... Well, actually in China, it's like the, yeah. the number one growing religion mm -hmm. in a country is in China right now. And I was reading these articles, and they're taking like these pastors to jail... Yeah. and all that mm -hmm. so they're having to go underground like literally underground yeah. and like yeah. these videos I've seen like they call it the most rarest video you will yeah. ever see it is amazing yeah there's a website called persecution.com and at one point they kind of changed the graphic user interface but they had a map of you click on a country and you see what's going on there um, and you know here I am I've never been physically assaulted for my faith for example I've been verbally abused because of my, my faith in Christ, but never physically. But these guys are literally landing on the line, mm -hmm. first century Christians. And and you, we do see a parallel. In fact, in Revelation, when he's talking to the seven churches, there's one, it's it's Smyrna, uh, the suffering saints of Smyrna, I call them. There's one guy named Polycarp. He's an elder at the church. They think he was probably either 86 or 95, depending on the, how you date him, but he was burned at the stake because he wouldn't deny Jesus. I mean, an elderly man 
And that's how ruthless and cruel and vicious it was. And I know you know what Nero did with Christians and, and mm -hmm. so forth. But at the end of the day, yeah, it seems like when there is persecution, it almost seems like that's when the church just kind of grows. But guys, we all know that, you know, God's kingdom, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That mm -hmm. God's going to continue with his mission. It's going to get accomplished. Whether or not Robert Allen wants to be part of it is, is another story. Now, I do want to be a part of it. I want everybody to. But at the end of the day, the, the fact of free will shows that he is a loving God. Now the act of free will is is our response to but yeah that's I'm not surprised to hear that though about China and uh, even in like some very strong Islamic countries too where you mm -hmm. you find Christians um, having some of the strongest faith systems that and support systems and and, and like you talk about the underground uh, you know Bible studies going on behind the scenes but let you know that. Jesus is alive and well, and he's mm -hmm. kicking in places that we didn't think he was. So. Exactly. <laughs> <the> exactly. <laughs> and I think I want to, I kind of want to relate that back to kind of what you were talking about, though, with, with younger, uh, younger people that you come into contact with. I think that um, one of the most underrated and misunderstood teachers in this world is pain. I think that um, pain is, it's incredibly uncomfortable obviously it is the act the opposite of comfort but the thing about pain is that it puts us in a place where staying complacent is not an option yeah. and i think wow, that yeah. um i think that as, as christians developing a faith we are going to come into contact with pain and i think that our response to that kind of makes or breaks faith and i think that you know you're talking about preparing uh preparing younger people to to face those challenges and giving them the weapons to, to stand in that uh in that circumstance and I think that that is so so important because a lot of times we mislabel pain as this has no meaning or this this pain has no there's no good outcome from this but I honestly think that pain is what we can make it and I believe that you know God prevails in the darkest of times and he uses pain as a wonderful teacher for us to shape our faith and to make us stronger and sometimes we need to change sometimes mm -hmm. it's a it's a partial judgment that, hey, what you're doing is going to hurt you, and mm -hmm. you might want to change. Um, but they talk about, you know, if you're talking about loss and suffering, uh, that type of pain, I know that there, there's what's called post-traumatic growth afterward. That happens, too, depending on what type of pain it's, pain that's happened to us, depending on or something we've caused on other people. But, yeah, at the end of the day, it is a reminder that maybe something needs to be changed. And I do know that when people experience pain, because, like, in our family – uh, we've we've taken care of a, a relative in our house for the last four years, and that person suffers from complex PTSD, and 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 that person just wants to be understood. And I was at the point where I was able to listen for the first time and, and actually connect with the person because when people do experience pain, they want to be understood. Anytime you go through something, you want people to understand what you're going through. You may not be going through the same thing. That's okay. But they want to. They want you to understand what they're going through, and I think Jesus was really good about doing that. He understood people's pain. We had moments when Lazarus died. Jesus wept. You know, it's the shortest verse in English. <laughs> yeah, not in Greek, but in English. Yeah, he wept. So we see the humanity of Jesus. Jesus kind of knows what we went through. He understands our pain, um, and that's that's what's so unique about the the Savior that we serve is that he actually. You know, he actually understands what we've went through, understands pain too. That's an excellent point. If you could sum up your life in one word, what would it be 
And why does that word resonate with you? Overcomer. Overcomer. That's a good um, word. I think for me, and, and connected with that is grit. Because I'll illustrate today's game today at Clinton High School. The guys are playing, and we're a first seed. We're playing, I think, obviously a lower seed. And we just weren't playing well. The final score was 28-25. And the guys just were really struggling offensively. But grit says you have passion and perseverance to to meet that, whether it's a long-term goal, in this case it's a short-term goal, it's a game. But it's meaningful to these guys because they've worked really, really hard to get to this point. Now, they're kind of out of their element. They didn't warm up the same way they normally warm up. It was a day game, not a night game. I could sit here and give excuses all day long. But at the end of the day, they did not do well offensively. They'll even say, we didn't do well offensively. It was an ugly win, but I'll take that win. Okay, but what... What I learned from it, their defense was awesome. Defense was great. And again, Grit says, I'm going to see this through to the end because I'm stubborn. <laughs> I mean, it's like you're stubborn. And so related that to overcomer, I think of all of my life experiences, how God has always been there for me. Even times when I don't even know if I acknowledged him. But he was always there for me. He's always been faithful, even though I haven't. And I've acknowledged that many times in my prayers to him. And I'm so grateful for his forgiveness his willingness to forgive me over and over again. And shouldn't I be that same extension to other people, you know, that as a Christian? So being an overcomer because um, at the end, I know that when I cross that finish line, I have a crown waiting for me mm-hmm. that I'll quickly toss down like the, like the 24 elders in Revelation do because I'm just so grateful that I'm able to cross that finish line and for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. And so that's why, you know, as a Christian, you know, in Romans 8, it talks about how we're more than conquerors because of Jesus. We've already won the battle. You know, God's taken care of the battle for us. Now it's just a matter of finishing the race. And so that's kind of where I'm at. So overcomer is probably the, the one word I would sum everything up with. I could talk more, but we'll see if you guys have anything else you wanted to add to that. Or I, I really, really like... Mom, a second bottle of water, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. No, but I really, really like uh, that analogy that you gave. You know, sometimes... Our offense is just, it's not where it needs to be. Sometimes we have bad days, you know, but at the end of the day, we know that the battle is already won, you know, yeah. that, that God has God has won the battle and has won the war. And I think even beyond that, you know, you talked about grit um, from the perspective of a follower so that we can become overcomers. I would say that, just kind of relating this, God's grit and his pursuit of us is also something to be said. We need to say something about that because yeah. a lot of times, you know, and you mentioned this about like giving giving your crown up to God because he's the one who made you an overcomer. I think that his grit in the pursuit of us through all of our through all of our imperfections, through all of our sins, all of our struggles, all of our pain, he continues to pursue us and continues to be yeah, like I'm that. right here and, and yeah, I'm I agree. I'm with you and and I think that that you know, that too kind of plays into it. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I was talking to my wife about this question, and I thought, well, I can't take an hour to talk about my marathon in 2015, but I was at a point spiritually where Satan had really wreaked havoc on our family health-wise. Um, almost lost my daughter in eighth grade. Her appendix burst because of a misdiagnosis. Um, I wanted to check on her, and guys, I think I've shared this story with you at least one time in chapel. I never, ever check on my kids. And something prompted me, and I always tell people it's the Holy Spirit. And usually when I tell that story, or when people tell stories like that, I think they're weirdos. And then I realize, I'm the weirdo. I'm now the weirdo. (laughs) 
And I realized that something prompted me to check on my kid. I'm so glad I did because the doctor said she would have been dead a few hours later. So, yeah, that's a, that, you know, and then my son had a, a breakout of, we're not sure what he had, a bacterial uh, outbreak. We think it might have been, what is it when you go to the, you're in the football locker room and you don't change out, you clean out the equipment, you can get, what's that, bacterial infection? Uh, staph. There you go, staph infection. I'm blanking out on that. What is that English word? Again? <laughs> so he broke out and he still has scars from that to this day. But when you have things, you know, it's one thing for Satan to come after you directly. It's like, come on, bring it on. But when he comes after you through your family, that's when I feel like you're most vulnerable. And so I was really angry. I never told the rest of the story of my marathon race, but... I was really upset, and it's like in the book of Psalms where people are crying out to God, Lord, I'm upset, you know, the end, and that's kind of, that's kind of where I was at, so I completed, I thought, well, yeah, I can either take a baseball bat to a tree, and wear out a tree, or I can run a race, and I need to lose some weight anyway. found out later that if you're running a marathon, not a good way to lose weight, but nevertheless, I completed 912 miles, I did my first and only marathon, I have Coach Garner at school, he said, hey, are you going to run another one? I said, we'll think about it now, you know, five, <laughs> six years later. I don't think so. I think I'm good. I don't know how Tia Stone runs in like every other month, but that's Tia Stone. She's an amazing lady. Um, but for me, it was about overcoming. And guys, when I, when I blasted through the, the finish line at AutoZone, you know, I always put my arms up in the air every time because I've done four halves since then. But I was so excited about actually finishing the race. Um, but it's overcoming and... Uh, I felt, I mean, I just felt relieved, you know, exhausted, obviously, and dehydrated. But I realized that yeah, I overcame something, and it was just something good for me. It was a good lesson on just grit, not giving up. I had lots of obstacles. Um, when I did my eight-mile run, my left leg froze, like froze up, like, and I found out later I wasn't putting enough calories in my body. And Coach Fester, our trainer, said, you need to eat. I'm like, oh, okay. I know how to do that. You know, because I was only consuming like 1,300 calories. But I had all these things. There, the day of the race, I was kind of nervous. And I thought, can I finish? Um, what if I'm sidelined by you know, spraining my ankle? I had all these things going on in my head. But at the end, when I finished, I was so grateful to God. And I learned a good lesson on perseverance and grit and overcoming. Just from that, that one, you know, life example, um, and so fast forward to now, you know, here we are. Um, I look back and I always see how God's been faithful. He's always been there to provide for the family. Um, you know, I remember one time praying in 2007 for Julie was going to go back to school to be a nurse and we needed the money, you know, so she wouldn't be working. I asked God for um, help us find a means financially to make it without anybody dying. I know that sounds crazy. This is, that's how I form my prayer. Please bless us financially without anybody dying because I have life insurance where all debts are paid if you know if one of us goes. But I get a call three days later from a friend about a Spanish adjunct job at ASU and and next thing you know, twelve years later, I mean, I had enough money to take care of the family until my wife got her job and suddenly that job disappeared. It became unavailable. It was really strange. Wow. But I thought, God he's so faithful. He's always taking care of us. And it it really, you know, it just reminded me of the importance of trusting in God because He will help you overcome. He'll give you the hope and strength and confidence that you need as long as you put your, put your hope and faith and trust in Him. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yes, um, definitely, definitely. That's such an encouragement. And, I, you know, I think it's really, really important to talk about that and to, um, to put the testimony of this is how God has come through for me in my life and my experiences and oh, that yeah. type of thing. And 
Thank you so much for sharing that. Personal testimony is, is, mm. is where it's at. Yeah. What's your next question? Uh, tell us what spiritual spiritual leadership means to you. <sighs> Practice what you preach. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll give an example uh, from today's culture. Justin Bieber. Um, I do confess. I do listen to a few of his songs. And Taylor Swift, while we're at it, uh, here's my man card. There you go. Um, I do like their music. Um, and so because I'm a high school teacher, I have to listen to music that connects with the kids. And that's mm-hmm. what they listen to. Okay. Um, and so I find myself just kind of, hey, we you listen to? Well, Justin Bieber was really struggling. I think he he was just all over the place morally. And I think he was kind of losing himself because he had too many yes people around him. Uh, having people not say no. Having all this money and the trappings of success. I mean... I told my wife that I said, I don't think I've ever wished that for my kids. I don't know if I'd want them to have that just because of how it could potentially destroy their lives. Well, Justin Bieber found a mentor at Hillsong Church, and I forgot his name, but next thing you know, we find out later he's been unfaithful to his wife and this, this, and this, and he's been removed from the church leadership and all that. But again, it just reminds you, practice what you preach. Another example that just happened last year is one of my favorite Christian apologists, Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Man, he's... Anytime he would speak, and it doesn't mean that when you watch him on YouTube that his words aren't true, but now for a lot of people they're tainted because we find out later from, you know, first I read it in Yahoo News, I'm like, mm, I kind of discounted it. I thought Yahoo News, they're just a hit piece on the Christian, right? Because he just passed, he can't defend yeah. himself. Yeah. But then I saw it in Christian Chronicle, and I went, uh, and look, I get it. All of us are zeros, and there's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. I get that. Yeah. But I also know that we have to have people, again, I'm not asking for perfection of anybody, but I'm asking people to be real in their walk with God. That's why I have mentors in my life like mm-hmm. Craig Jones, um, Mark Benton, who's been a huge um, mentor in my faith, and he, he's in Jackson, Tennessee. That guy came three hours just to pray with me at school while I was weeping over a very difficult moment in my life. He was there for me. It's people like that that are genuine. He'll be the first to tell you, I'm not perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they're they're trying to imperfectly walk with God, and you can see it, and it's evident in their lives. So practice what you preach. Mm-hmm. That's, That's what so spiritual right. leadership right. is to me. That's so true, and I think that kind of relates back to uh, kind of what we were talking about earlier with you know mm-hmm. having that genuine faith and that genuine love and that type of thing because, you know, and that goes back to what I was saying. I think that having that kind of faith is the kind of thing that changes the world. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day what we say. Our actions are going to speak louder than anything that we ever say. Yeah. And, you know, are we allowing God to, to speak to others through our actions and yeah. through how we conduct ourselves in our lives? Right, and accountability. See, mm-hmm. these leaders were never accountable, and I think that's one of the problems is we need accountability. Just like there's a book called Every Man's Struggle, Every Man's Battle, I'm sorry. And there's a, a teen version called Every Young Man's Battle. Well, one of the big battles, as you well know, and I'm sure it's in the other podcasts, is just purity. Just living pure. You know, back in the day when I was a kid, I'd steal magazines out of our neighbor's trash can from older brothers. But now you got it on your phone. And, I mean, anything can happen. And I have, a, I have some parents who, years ago, they confided in me to to have their kid download this app from triplexchurch.com. I first saw it on the freeway in California, and it said, Best Christian Porn Site. I'm like, what? <laughs> i got to check this out. So I checked it out, and they have an app where you can download on your phone, your computer, and basically it sends an email to an accountability partner. So I'm an accountability partner with people, so 
If they've gone to a questionable website, I get an email really quick. But the point is simply is that they care about the spiritual battle enough to where they realize they need to be accountable to people. And so I have people accountable and that I'm accountable to in my life that, you know, I know one guy, if I'm ever feeling weak, I just give him a phone call really fast and all is taken care of. Uh, we need people like that. I think these spiritual leaders went unchecked. And because they didn't have accountability, it's, it's really easy to follow. And sadly, I've said this to my students also. For the teacher, there's no forgiveness. That's why in James 3, he says, don't let many of you become teachers. Because why? You're going to incur a stricter judgment. If there's one scripture, guys, I would love to remove from the Bible. That would be the one. Because I'm a teacher. And I'm going to get a stricter judgment. I don't like that. But... <laughs> I chose this profession, and that's why it's important. That's why if I offend a student, I'll be the first to apologize, guys, because I did something to upset them. So if I can make it right with them, now they may be upset with me for a few days. Okay, I get it. But if I've done something, I hurt them in some way, man, you know, Jesus says, you know, about causing young people to stumble. Not good. Mm -hmm. So it's important for spiritual leaders to to not go unchecked. And I think that's what happened in the case of Justin Bieber, Robbie Zacharias, and there's, I mean, more I could talk about, but those are the two that were right on my mind, fresh right now. But that's important to just practice what you preach, going back to the beginning here. That's so true. And, you know, I think of, you know, that, that level of accountability and that type of thing. I think it is, it's so important. And I feel like oftentimes we just neglect that because it's uncomfortable. You know, we don't yeah. want to talk about it because, it is. It is uncomfortable, but I don't mind. It's so exactly, exactly. But it's so, so important. Uh, There's a really, really good book. It's called The Purity Principle by Randy Alcord. A little tiny one, but it's so good. And we even taught it, my wife and I, in ninth grade Bible class at College Church at one time. And uh, again, it's just it's so important because it's everybody's struggle. But it just goes back to who you're going to put your hope and faith and trust in back at the beginning. And realizing that you can't fight this battle alone. I think when Satan gets us alone is when we're in trouble. <laughs> we don't give him his due. You know, we, you know, yeah, we, he who is in us is greater than he is in the world. But he who is in the world is still pretty powerful. Obviously, yeah. he's wreaking havoc in a lot of lives. Uh, so we don't give him his due. But at the same time, that's why it's important that we arm ourselves. And part of it is being accountable. And listen, that same guy, he's about to get married. I still get emails uh, from him. I don't know whenever that may stop. But I'm so grateful, and I, I do contact him every once in a while. I'll just say, hey, man, you're doing a great job. I'm just so proud of you. And so it, it encourages me to see that there are people fighting a good fight. And, you know, as the way I see it, I'm part of the solution. And that's probably why, you know, I'm targeted by the evil one, because he knows that, you know, I'm, I'm out there trying to, you know, arm my students with weapons, spiritual weapons, to fight the battle. And I'm sure he doesn't like that. <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless, yeah. it's, you know, it's important to have that spiritual leadership that it shouldn't go unchecked. We should be accountable to each other. Even the leaders, I'm saying, even the leaders mm -hmm. need to be accountable. I think that's so true. And I think that, um, at least this is what I've heard from uh, some from spiritual teachers in, in, um, in my own life, is that they say, as soon as you start going down the right path, whether, whether it's as a teacher or just as a genuine Sister. Christian, yeah. Satan puts a target on your back and yeah. he will go after you. you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that's exactly right. It's not that once you become a teacher, suddenly you just don't have any problems anymore. It's no, no, no. You are a teacher now. Satan is on you all the time, and he's looking for a way to mess you up so that he can he can make you fall as long, along with like everybody that you've influenced in yeah. some way. And, and that in return kind of goes back to the grit thing because it really strengthens my resolve. Because I'm pretty stubborn. When you get to know me, I'm stubborn. 
And and so the only way to overcome is I got to be stubborn, realizing God's going to protect me. He's going to see this through. I may not see it myself because I'm going through some serious pain right now and suffering, but God's going to see it through. And it's easy to quote it, guys. I'm telling you, it's so easy to quote that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and call according to His purpose. But when you're going through it at the time, not fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's not very fun. That's true. And also from the perspective of uh, someone who, uh, who, who struggles with that and maybe is struggling their faith because of that too, I think that one of the biggest lies that Satan tells young men is that, oh, you've already messed up too much, you can't turn around. Or maybe you're just stuck in this. You can't escape. There is no escape for you and that type of thing. Why did Jesus die for our sins then? Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's what I want to what I want to say to, to anybody up, out maybe. there. Yeah, exactly. Anybody out there that's struggling with, with guilt or something like that, or maybe you feel like a dirty person. Maybe you feel like you you don't have an escape and that type of thing. And I just want to say that, you know, God values you so highly. That instead of, he couldn't bear the thought of being separated for you from eternity. And so he quite literally came down into the earth in human form and died in your place so that you wouldn't have to. Yeah. The, the Greek word for sin, hamartia, it just means to miss the mark. And so I always point out when I'm sharing my faith with people, whether you, you've missed the mark, because it was used in archery. You'd say hamarton in Greek if you missed. I sinned, I missed. Well, if I got 999 times out of 1,000, would you want me on your Olympic team? Probably. Probably. I mean, if, if I was an archer, you'd want me, even though I missed that one time. But see, whether it's one time or hundreds of times, you know, it's still the same with God. And that's why I try to convey to people. That's why for people think, I'm, I'm just too messed up. You know, this, that person may be lost in the forest and I'm giving them a flashlight and a roadmap, roadmap to get on the road. And, yeah, they may have lost some time, but they can still get back on that road. They can get on the right path. Just for some, though, but that's tough, though. To, it's a tough sell when people think that they're just so far gone. And, you know, it's kind of like the story of Peter and Judas. You know, Judas betrayed Jesus, felt bad about it, took his life. You know, the Bible talk, calls that, you know, worldly sorrow. Peter betrayed Jesus probably more than three times, you know, in the, the biblical text. But he turned it around, and we call that godly sorrow. Hmm. Anybody can turn it around. Anybody can get God's forgiveness. I think for a lot of people, it's that belief level of knowing, like, I'm really, truly forgiven. Mm -hmm. And again, I think uh, part of the solution is is the support system in place. When people when people come back to God for maybe this addiction or that addiction, they usually come back not on their own, but with the help of many concerned Christian believers mm -hmm. that are trying to help them make it. Because mm -hmm. again, right now I feel with COVID and you know people going to church online and. It's, it's been easy, I think, for I think the evil one to pick people off and like, hey, you don't need to go to church anymore. Really? You know? and, and that's something that, um, you know, I can't wait for norm, normal again where we can all be back in the same pews and sitting closer to each other. I miss that. You know? It's okay. I've been to physical church a few times, but because I have had an elderly person, he's now just got a shot, so we're free to go back in again. But um, it's it's a lot. I mean, I, I miss normal, just normal church and just the normal experiences, and hopefully we'll get to that soon. I feel like it'll be this year. I hope so. Yeah, Lord willing. <laughs> yes, yes. Amen. So what is the most important trait a Christian can have? Uh, I would say when I first saw the question, I, I immediately thought the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, mm -hmm. peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
And then I went to 1 Corinthians 13 and I thought, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So my answer for you, Brayden, is going to be love. But not just love, because in Greek there's four types of love. you got your family love, your romantic love, your friendship love, and then you got the unconditional love, and that's the one I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Because when I have that unconditional love, all the other pieces kind of fall into place. Um, and I can elaborate further unless you want to comment about that. Oh, no, I agree. I 100% agree. That's true. And I think that having that, that level of love and that level of dedication can be very, very difficult, especially in our world where we live in a society where, you know, that kind of love is unpopular. It's not cool to, to always give yourself, you know, people, yeah. it's, it isn't popular, but I think it is definitely needed. What yeah. do you think? Well, yeah, I, I agree. In fact, I, when I began at the Academy in 1992, 10 years later in 2002, I had my first group of, you know, the reunion people. The very first thing they said to me was, hey, you're still here? <laughs> that was the very first thing they said to me. I'm like, yeah, I know, right? I, I survived because I did not know the culture at Harding. Did not understand. I'm from California. So I had a, a learning curve, shall we say. Having said that, um, when they came back, but then the second thing they said was, oh, yeah, you're the guy that loves his wife. <laughs> that was awesome because, and I know you guys have probably heard me say it one time in my teaching where I do three things every day for my wife. I tell her I love her. Pay her a compliment. I do something nice for her every day. At least I try to every day. Mm -hmm. And and so, and so in our family, to, to you know, as we're talk, since we're talking about love, for me, family is anyone whom you choose to love unconditionally. And so that's why, you know, I choose even with my students. They they know it because not only do I tell it to them, I try to show it to them. They're like my surrogate familia because. When I'm, when I'm, you know, I'm serving them, I even spend my own money, not the school's money, but my own money, not so much to brag, but I'm saying, one, my kids aren't in the house, so I actually have money again. That's a real reason <laughs> for keeping it real here. Um, and, and so for me, any money spent on, on my students is always money well invested. Because whether it's donuts or quesadillas or juicy tacos, whatever it is, I'm, I'm able to serve them because we have a saying in Spanish, si vives para servir, if you live to serve, sirves para vivir, you serve to live. And that's part of who I am. You know, I, I, my goal always in front of my students is to draw them closer to Jesus. Now, I think the essence of Jesus is, is, ser is servanthood, being the best servant possible, and showing them unconditional love. Because I have kids, believe it or not, even at the academy, we have kids going through stuff and stuff that they aren't always willing to share. But you can kind of sense what's going on, whether it's not completing assignments, but the real reason is they're, they're distracted because their family's falling apart at home. Kind of hard to do a Spanish assignment when they just can't put it on the back burner. Like, you know, sometimes, in fact, adults can't always do it either. But at the end of the day, just unconditional love and understanding and kind of maybe slightly nudging them on occasion that maybe you need to still put this on the back burner. Maybe school is a good distraction for you right now with all the bad things going on in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe... Maybe come to, you know, and the things that I share in my Bible class or in my Spanish classes might make or break their day. So it's important for me to be as a teacher to show and demonstrate that unconditional love. They can sense it. At least that's my goal because I've always said as a teacher, if you have a passion for people, you know your subject matter and you can manage your classroom, then you can be a teacher. Because I used to think when I first started in 1992 that I'm going to tell them what I teach them, I'm going to teach them, and I'm going to tell them what I taught them. Well, I discovered early on, it's all about the relationship. It's mm -hmm. all about the relationship. 
And it, when a kid knows that you unconditionally love them, it makes a huge difference. Hmm. That's so true. And, and I think of, you know, specifically the biggest thing that made, or one of the biggest things that Jesus demonstrated that made him different than the teachers that the Israelites were used to at that time is that he gave that love to them. He oh, gave yeah. them that love. He wasn't just about do this, don't do this. He was about who are you? I know who you are. You know, yeah. I recognize the situation that you're in. I understand your pain and I love you despite your shortcomings. Yeah. And I think that that's the kind of love that radiates perfection, the perfection of the Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, that that is just so, so important because our our world longs for that. Our yeah. world longs for, yeah. for, for a belonging. You know, that's why we see, and this is what I believe, I believe that's why we see so many people searching for identity and other things in the world. It's because they want somewhere to belong and they're missing the fact that their intrinsic value isn't going to be found somewhere out there. It's going to be found inside. It's going to be found in a creator who values you more than his own life. Yeah. Jesus even tried to do that with Peter at the end of John where, now this is where knowing the Greek, because I did study the original, um, it, it helps you don't see it in the English. Jesus tells Peter, he says, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter says, I like you a lot. He used the friendship love. And Jesus said it again. And then finally, Jesus on the third try, he says, hey, Peter, do you like me a lot? And he said, yeah, I like you a lot. <laughs> so Peter kind of learned humility because at first he's like, oh, I'll die for you. And, but my point is he showed that unconditional love and he was reaffirming. He tried on three different occasions, probably more than then, to reaffirm people. I think that's important too when you unconditionally love people. Sometimes people need that reaffirmation that, Hey, you're okay. It's going to be all right. Um, I know maybe you failed here on this task, but moving forward, it's it's going to be okay. So reaffirmation is, is huge because when people um, when people know that they're loved unconditionally, it, it's a lot easier to, I think, take action and make the change that they need to make in their life. Um, mm. That's really true. I think that the biggest thing that we can do to help people come to the, the terms that they need to in their own lives is to give them love, give them understanding and help them understand, you know, I'm accepted the person that I am, but I know that there are things that I can improve on, you know, and it's not that, and there are people that are going to be with me through this that don't judge me because of the mistakes that I made, but they love me and they want to see me better. Right. I agree. I agree. Definitely. So what is the biggest lesson you have learned from being a young adult? Okay, first of all, you're going to remove young out of the question. <laughs> Good to do. I'm over half a century. Um, I definitely wouldn't say I'm a young adult. I'll say adult. Um, the biggest lesson I've learned, this is coming from all my life experiences, um, me studying, drinking from the original sources in the Bible, studying Greek, Hebrew, all that, all the lessons I've taught, all the experiences, the mission trips, this is what I've learned. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yeah. That's my lesson. I'm, I'm humbled that God would love me despite my faults. It gives me confidence and courage moving forward to, to help other people. And one thing I've learned from all this is that mercy givers are first the mercy getters. Once you, experience God, once you experience God's grace and mercy, it's so easy to be His instrument of peace and His extension of, of His grace for other people. That's kind of the lesson I've learned from all of this. Mm-hmm. Of all the studying I've ever done, guys, is 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's such a powerful lesson, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. I think it's, yeah, it, there's something to be said on how beautiful and powerful such a, a simple, like, it sounds simple, yeah. but it's so yeah. profound and deep, though, you know, that, you know, you are fully known. Like, all of your shortcomings and perfections, you're known. He sees me. He still, he sees he still me, loves and he me. He still loves me. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that... Even when I'm unfaithful, he still wants me back. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Just that like Hosea, in Isaiah. Story, that was, that was great imagery there. That was perfect. Yeah, spot on. Well, do you have anything else to say? Well, I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to do this podcast and, and to share my story. And if there's anyone out there listening that any of the thoughts that we shared, it challenges you or encourages you in any way to uh, choose Jesus because I do not believe he is a way, but he is the way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I believe that uh, by following Jesus, uh, you won't just have an awesome life in this world, but you're going to have an awesome one in the next. And I, I guess I'd end with a quote from C.S. Lewis because he's always a great guy to quote anyway. I, I teach this in my class, but if Christianity is untrue, the believers lost nothing. And yeah. what I mean by that is, I've had a great life. It's kind of coincidental that, you know, if I follow just the Ten Commandments, I've even said this to people, if you're an atheist, you follow Ten Commandments, you have a pretty good life. Just follow the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. um, but if Christianity is true, the unbelievers lost everything. So either you believe that nothing created something, or something timeless created time. And something, something that was in the pre-existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, created all that we have here. Mm -hmm. and, and so either you believe in, you know, we came from the goo to the zoo to you, or you <laughs> believe that there is a God, you know, you know there, is, there is a God, and that the most... You know, I always ask my students, what's the greatest miracle in the Bible? And they usually, you know, I set the trap up for them. They say, the resurrection. I'm like, wrong. That's the second one. The greatest miracle in the Bible is found in the first verse in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. If you believe in that miracle, that makes all the other miracles possible. And so it all starts with that first verse in Genesis. And so that would be my encouragement for people who are searching for God, who have questions about God. I encourage you to continue to search. But at the end of the day, the reason why I, I am who I am today is because of Jesus and because of the resurrection. Definitely. And so I hope that encourages somebody who may be listening to this podcast. All righty. Well, Henry, do you have anything else to say? Not much, not much. Thank you so much for coming yes, on. Thank you so That's very it. much for being on hey. here. All right. Thank you very much. All righty. Well, this has been the Steadfast Podcast. We will see you next week. Out.